Last week, the first part of John 15, Jesus said, he uses this uh, metaphor, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. He says that our relationship to him is like a vine to its, uh, a mother vine to its branches. And we are to receive our nourishment from him. And when we are connected to him, then we're being nourished. When we are disconnected, he says uh, that branches that are disconnected to the vine, they don't bear fruit. They wither and they die. But connected to him, there is going to be a great deal of fruitfulness. The best part of the metaphor is that, you know, what's the role of a branch in this, in the system? There's nothing heroic that a branch has to do. All it has to do is just sit there and soak up the nourishing juices of the vine. And I said that in 21st century American life, what it means for us to do is slow down from the hurry and the hustle and bustle and all of that and just receive our nourishment to get our souls healthy. And we said we talked quite a bit about our souls and the the strange... It's a strange idea that we are carrying around inside of us one part of our humanity. The the one part that we're going to have forever into the future is this thing called our souls, which is probably the most neglected part of our humanity. We have minds, bodies, wills, but the soul is the thing that holds it all together. The soul is the life center of us as human beings. And if we're being honest on any given Sunday or any given day of the week, our souls are not very healthy. And probably the reason is because we don't do a very good job resting and abiding and soaking up his juices. That's where we're at as we get to verse 7 in John chapter 15, where Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now abide in my love. If you obey my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and abide in his love. I have told you this so that My joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full or complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends, if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves or servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you might bear much fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. So when I start to prepare a sermon at the very beginning of the week, I read my passage and I just jot down, things that immediately come come to mind. And I felt overwhelmed when I started to read this because I read this passage and I see some, there's a lot of different subject material here. He's talking about a lot of stuff. But what's in the passage? Well, there's something about prayer, something about 
obedience, something about, uh, he says, treasure my words. Well, that's got to be Bible study. Uh, and he says, love other people. And so what I, you might not be like this, but when I read a passage like this, I run it through my grid. And what I hear is, Brad, you need to pray more, read your Bible more, you know, love people better, obey more. And it's so easy with a passage like this to just walk away um, snowed by all of the things that you're not doing well and you ought to be doing well according to John chapter 15. And you just, we're, we're wasted. Um, we, we're just so discouraged by that. I think there is a way to read Jesus here and to think about these various uh, matters through the metaphor that he gives us, this metaphor of abide, abide. And so let me start here. What is abiding prayer? I think there's such a thing as abiding prayer. What is that? Okay, on Friday afternoon, I was uh, late for a meeting, and I was a little nervous about it. As I headed down Meridian Road, I looked out into the distance, and I spied road construction. I'm like, oh, no. So I pull a left onto McMillan Road. I travel about half a mile, and what do I spy out in the distance there? Road construction. So then I hang a right on Locust Grove, and at that moment, I say to the Lord, I say, Lord, please make the traffic lights work in my favor, and please, no more road construction. Is that a legitimate prayer? Does God really care for you and me to pray about the inconsequential and maybe selfish, certainly mundane aspects of our lives? And I think the answer that Jesus gives is absolutely yes. One of the best ways that you can learn to abide is to ask anything. Ask, he says, anything. Ask anything in my name. Ask anything. I mean, the great part about it is, um, well, we can relate to it as far as the imperfect parents that we are. I love to find out what is on my children's hearts, what is on their minds. I hope that there's never been an instance, there might have been, but I hope there has never been an instance where they asked me for something and I said, stupid request, right? We love to hear what they have to say. We love for them to ask us things. And the beauty of abiding prayer is it doesn't matter if you ask for the wrong thing. By asking, you are entering into the dialogue with your Heavenly Father, and you are keeping open the conversation. Is that how you relate to prayer? You know, many of us, I think we operate with a functional divide where like on this side of the divide we have all of those things that I can handle on my own. And on this side of the divide all these things I need God for. Over here, you know, make your list. Uh, I don't need God's help to find a parking place in downtown Boise. <laughs> I don't need God's help. I can change a flat bicycle tire on my own. But then on, over here I've got my spiritual things. Um, I need God's help to heal people. I, I can't heal them if they're in the hospital. And I need God's help to help me share my faith and to express the gospel to, to other people. But upon closer inspection, I think you would agree 
that the divide is entirely, entirely illegitimate. Did I do this in the first, in the second service? Did I talk about the neonatal unit um, at the Lord's table? I, I, I did in the first service. I said the image that I have in mind, if you've ever been into the, in the neonatal unit and you see that little preemie baby, they've got tubes and wires coming out of every orifice of their body. I mean, they're so small, and they're underneath the heat lamps. They can do, what can they do on their own? They can do absolutely nothing. Nothing. They can't even exhale on their own. I, I think that's probably, when God looks at us, that's what he sees. Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And, well, why don't you take him at his word? This divide thing, I can handle it on my own, but I need God for this. No, no, no. Um, And the problem is, if you think that God doesn't want you to pray about the mundane, inconsequential, selfish things of your life, the the risk that you run is you're effectively going to cut God out of about 97% of your life. Right? If you think that God doesn't care about... Um, parking places and stoplights and copying machi- copier machines that, that uh, jam when you're trying to get your Sunday school lesson together at the last moment. If you think he'd, that's our lives. That's, that's in that 98% of where we live. That's us. Of all of the books that's taught me how to pray, it would be number one on the list was Paul Miller's A Praying Life. And that's where I got this idea. He says, the best way to learn how to abide is to ask anything of your Heavenly Father. Um, he says, my quote, my, my job is, is not to figure out what God is doing at any given moment exactly, or how or why he might answer my prayer in a certain way. My job is simply to talk to the sovereign Lord of the universe, who also happens to be my Heavenly Father, because he loves for us to depend on him in that way. Okay, verse 16. I want to read. Verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I, I happened to choose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit. And when he's talking here about fruit, we have the sense he's talking about um, character, the, the fruit of the Spirit. I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And I think that, that he's probably making a close connection between prayer and prayer for fruit. So, w- when you look at yourself in the mirror, do you find that you are a gloomy, sort of half, glass half empty person who needs to be more joyful? Well, pray for that fruit. Uh, do you find that you're a hard person and you want to become more tender, more gentle, more kindly sympathetic to others? You pray for that fruit. Are you an unforgiving person and want to be forgiving? Um, what Jesus says is because we are connected to him like a branch to a vine, we should never say that I'll never change. We should never say that oh, I'm just the same person I always was and uh, why should I why should I keep fighting? Because I won't be, I'll never be any different. No, we never, if we're connected to him, we have this, we, we will change. And the reason we will grow and bear fruit 
is because Jesus can change absolutely anybody. And that's what we pray for. Do you still pray for fruit? Like those fruits of the Spirit in your life. He wants you to. And it comes out of your union with Christ. So that's number one. Abiding prayer. Then we come to the second aspect of the passage. I've entitled it Abiding Obedience, but I don't know really that that's the best way to phrase it. But there was a lot about commands in the first John reading, chapter 5, that we had already, and, and this passage, uh, you know, obey my commands. Here is what I've discovered. I think it's a, almost a universal truth. I think you would agree with it. When our souls are, are in an unhealthy state, when we are in a bad place spiritually, how do, how do God's commands feel to us at those moments? I mean, they feel like a drag. I hate God's commands, Right? Uh, they feel impossibly difficult and, and they feel it's capricious and unhealthy that God, would, God wouldn't want me to do that and they feel harmful. So this was a situation a few years ago. I, I, I'm obscuring the details a little bit too, but I knew a Christian guy who was dating a non-Christian gal. And he knows, he knew just not something you're not supposed to do that can uh, uh just to remember how this works that can a non-christian marry a non-christian absolutely can a christian marry christian absolutely can a christian marry a non-christian no and the whole reason that you date somebody is to figure out if you want to marry him and they he knew this he shouldn't be dating her but he was very lonely and when you get in a lonely place you're spiritually not doing very well. Uh, you don't want to hear that. And I, as a pastor, I'm trying to tell him that. And he's, he says, Brad, I believe I, I've come to the place in my spirituality where I've discovered that it's all about relationships and not rules. Ever, ever had anybody tell you that before? You know, rule schmools. Uh, who, who needs rules? He says, I, Brad, you have your rules I have a relationship with Jesus. <laughs> and we create this false dichotomy, don't we? And it's like, what, what page of the Bible are you reading here? I mean, it doesn't like every good and healthy relationship involve rules and parameters. No, but when you're in an unhealthy place, God's, you reach these false dichotomies. Like, I can either stay in this marriage and be miserable for all the, the days of my life, uh, but God wouldn't want me to do that. I mean, how would a loving God want me to be miserable forever? And no, um, we, we reach all of these false conclusions. But on the other hand, when, you are, when your soul is healthy and you are in a good place spiritually, how do God's commands feel to you then? They are, they are absolutely the sweetest thing that you've ever tasted. They really are. They're sweet. And we look at God's rules at that moment in a different way than the rest of the world looks at him and even a different way than most other Christian brothers and sisters look at him. We, we run it through the filter of these are the rules of my heavenly father who loves me. This is the wisdom of my heavenly father who's trying to protect me. This is the goodness of my, my Lord Jesus who would do anything, everything for my welfare and benefit. You look at the rules, and if, when you are healthy, you say, there is safety in the rules. 
There is security in these rules. Thou shalt enjoy at least one bowl of ice cream each week. You know, that's a sweet rule. It, just, it all depends on the rule, doesn't it? Did you realize that there is a rule against, uh, a divine rule against you being busy seven days a week? Can you imagine a rule that tells you you have to take a day off? You just have to sit, rest, and be a branch. Now, that's a sweet rule when you, when you stop to think about it. That's a good way to live. There's a seventh commandment that says uh, you are supposed to live a sexually chaste and pure life. And while that's not an easy rule, especially in our world, to follow, man, that's a good way to live. I mean, doesn't that end up saving you loads and mountains of mental pain and anguish? That's a sweet rule when you... When you're looking at it, um, there's a rule which says that when you are tempted in your heart to murder that guy over there, uh, you're to forgive him. A command, uh, you, thou must forgive. That'll actually end up adding 10 years to the end of your life if you don't eat up yourself in bitterness and anger. And the point being, when you're healthy, the rules are sweet. Um, last night, no, Friday night, get my dates, nights confused, my daughter's school had their equivalent of what's the prom. And um, I'm so proud of my two eldest daughters dressed up as they were in their beautiful evening gowns. And um, It's strange, you know, when the, do you remember when your kid went off to the prom for the first time? <laughs> It's really strange to watch the days click by. <laughs> um, but it was good. They head out. And the, so the way their school dance works is you don't actually end up going with a date, but you're assigned a, a date to, to sit with you at the formal meal, and you're supposed to carry on you know, casual conversation, dinner conversation. And then when it comes time for the dance, you're assigned another, another guy, and he dances with you for a few dances. And then after that, it's the responsibility of the guys to go out and find themselves a girl and ask him to dance. Now put yourself in the shoes of a ninth grade boy. <laughs> and that's the responsibility that you have. I mean, it's, that is really awkward and uncomfortable to take those steps across the dance floor to that clump of girls, right, over there and say, May I have this dance? <laughs> Then put yourself in the shoes of a father. And a father says, Son, uh, for you to love one another by laying your life down for, for somebody else, what it means is, you know, lace up your dancing shoes and, and get, go get yourself uh, a partner. And when that, so when that song is over, you go right back and find yourself another girl to dance for, dance with. You do not go off into the corner with your buddies and eat Doritos for the, for the rest of the night. But no, you don't want a single one of those girls to walk home and say, nobody would dance with me. You're going to dance the whole night away. And at the end of the dance, when she says to you, thank you, you are not going to say, well, my dad commanded me to do it. <laughs> 
But there's an element of truth to that, right? But um, I, I almost think it's like the, the first few awkward steps are my dad commanded me. But once it starts going, once you start dancing, once you've taken a couple of girls onto the dance floor with you, it's no longer my God, my dad commanded me. It's this is for this is for my joy and for her joy. It's for the fullness of complete joy. I don't never forget. That's what Jesus is talking about in verse eleven. He says, let's read it. Verse 11. I have told you this. Say, what is the this? I have told you this about obeying my commands and laying your life down, loving another person. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be full and complete. Um, You you, you walk in here this morning and you're like, I want some fullness of joy. Sounds good. Fullness of joy. Not exactly what I'm feeling right now. Very rarely does someone say, hey, how are you doing? Experiencing fullness of joy. But there's a sense that's what Jesus is trying to give you. I want this for you. I want you to... The other thing that I would just remind you of is, um, you know, God's commandments are a reflection of his character. And... We happen to serve a God who is holy and pure and good and just and righteous and honest and truthful. And so he commands you to be fair and just and pure and good and truthful. And and if you say, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just not interested in these commands, God, but I sure do love you. That doesn't work. If you love this God... um, who is like this, then you will you'll want to be like your heavenly father. And really what it comes down to is uh, the state of your soul when you're reading the commandments, when you're reading the rules. I gave you the image last week of the, the new app on the iPad, the, the soul camera, where you take a picture of yourself and it gives you a representation of what your soul is right now. And if your soul is in a state kind of like I said the mer-creatures and Little Mermaid who had sold themselves out to Ursula, then, of course, you're going to just, it seems impossible to obey this capricious God. But if we can get you back to a place where your soul is healthy, then that's the place of fullness of joy. That's where we're going. That's where Jesus is taking you. Oh, okay, well... On to my last, the last part of the sermon. <laughs> I have here a, a book by Eugene Peterson, one of a lot of our favorite authors, entitled Practice Resurrection, A Conversation on Growing Up in Christ. He tells the story from his childhood. He was about 16 years old when this event takes place. Uh, there was an itinerant teacher in the church world that he was in back in, in his day, John Wright Follett. He said, at the time I'm writing about, Dr. Follett was an elderly man in his 70s, very small in stature, a bachelor uh, for all of his life. He had never been married. He always spoke in a soft and genteel voice and was greatly revered as a saint over you know, all the country 
and my parents were very fond of him, and so we would provide him hospitality. He would come up to their place in Montana and stay at their lake cabin in the summers. Well, one summer day, I accompanied my mother to the cabin so that we could prepare Dr. Follett's meals and so that I could sit at his feet. Her words, not mine. I actually was greatly in awe of this man, of of his reputation as a holy and righteous man. Well, after lunch, he retired to his hammock on the shore of the lake to rest. And I stayed up in the cabin, and I looked down at him, hoping that he would wake up. I I desperately wanted to talk to the famous Dr. Follett, and I wanted to, to talk to him about prayer. And I thought, this is the chance of a lifetime. Uh, if I could just go down there and have this conversation with him. So about an, after an hour or so, I, I became impatient. And I asked my mom, Mom, how long do you think he's going to sleep? And she said, he's not sleeping, dear. He's, he likes to be quiet and listen to the Holy Spirit. I thought, oh, this is good. So I, but she told me that I could go down and I could meet with him. So very, very tentatively and cautiously, I approached the hammock. And I squeaked out the words, Dr. Follett, uh, can, I, can I possibly bother you for a second to talk to you about prayer? Dr. Follett didn't open his eyes, but he spoke. And when he spoke, he spoke in a kind of growl and bark like I had never heard him speak before. He said, pray, son? I haven't prayed for 40 years. And I was, I was stunned. I, I, I left. I just wandered off into the woods, puzzled and then absolutely scandalized that the, the venerable Dr. Follett hadn't prayed for the last 40 years. What a fraud! I couldn't tell my mother, so I just kept it a secret. Five or six years later, I realized what had actually taken place. Of course, Dr. Follett had prayed in the last 40 years. He prayed every day. He prayed every hour. And he was, he was a wise and holy man. But he knew that there was an adolescent boy standing beside him who would have, if he had given me prayer advice, would have swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. Who would have taken anything he said at that moment and slavishly imitated it, imitated it Whatever you would have said would have sent me off for years of trying to be like Dr. Follett at prayer. And I would have wasted a number of years trying to imitate his icon when he knew actually what I needed was to be experimenting and practicing on my own. This whole vocalization and language of prayer, uh, internalizing the language of prayer from the Psalms and from David. Um, So it was a risky strategy, but he was willing to risk my puzzled and temporarily scandalized disillusionment in order to save me from trying to imitate him. When I read that story, it deeply resonated with me because I think the temptation for, for us as pastors is we get to a passage like this where there's a lot of sort of practical stuff And we come to a passage like this, and what we want to do immediately is to say, here's how you do it. You want to pray? Here's five steps to pray. 
You, um, you need to abide in Jesus' word. Well, here's, here's, let me give you a new Bible meditating strategy. Let's, let's do a little Lectio Sacra Bible reading. Here's a little, um, here's your Bible calendar. You, you follow it. Uh, we get to a passage like this. You want to abide in Christ? Five steps to abiding in Christ. And we come up with this great alliteration of A stands for ask. <laughs> B stands for, I don't know, I could have A, B, I, D, E. You know, here's, we want to, and there's a place for that. But there's also a critical place for you to take the initiative, uh, for you to experiment and to discover what does it mean for me to abide in his words. What does it mean for me to abide in his love? Um, How can I take passages like this? Greater love has no one other than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And I call you friends. I mean, the temptation, again, for us as pastors is, I'm, I'm going to try to give you a great sermon illustration on how you're a friend of Jesus, and, uh, and he's laid down his life for you. And the temptation, I think, is for, for you to walk away and think, man, great sermon and sermon illustration. But then you drop it there. And you don't take the initiative of, of experimenting and, and owning it. What does it mean to own? Abide in Christ. Abide in my love. Abide in my word. Am I barking up the wrong tree? Or do you know it's so critical that you do? Fine, the last thing, you know, every one of us basically approaches church or the Bible or Jesus or God with this long list of accusations. I I mean, could you feel that any more than on Mother's Day, moms, where you got this just long list of, I'm bad at fill in the blank, right? I'm I'm bad. I'm just a bad wife. I'm a bad cook. I'm a bad manager of my household. And and we, uh, husbands, we have, I'm a bad leader, I'm a bad dad, I'm a bad father, and I'm a, a bad student, and I'm a bad son, and I'm a bad daughter. And you have all of these accusations of the, the evil one. It, what you have to learn how to do is to take Jesus' words and abide in them. And says, no, he calls me his friend. <laughs> um, he calls me his friend. He says I am loved. He t- when you take it upon yourself to meditate and internalize these words of Jesus, um, that's when the penny drops into your soul, and surely that's when you become most fruitful. That is when the branch ends up bearing the most fruit.